The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. My name is Casey. I serve as Parkwood's campus pastor to Mount Holly, and it is certainly a joy to be with you this morning and minister God's word and enjoy together the grace of God. And can I just say thank you for days like today? Thank you for your investment in young men like myself and young men like. Andrew and Joseph, who will also bring God's word this morning. What a joy it is. What a privilege it is to be part of a church that invests in the next generation and passing on the faith. And uh, it's a privilege to serve this morning. So Ephesians 2 is where we are at this morning. I invite you to turn with me there as we look at verses 1 through 10. And as you're turning, I invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Paul writes, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Oh God, I pray that you would awaken affections in the hearts of your people this morning. That we would enjoy together your glorious grace. Lord, I pray that you would cause dead people to come alive this morning. That people who walked in this room dead, would walk out changed forever. We are looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you say in your word it is the power of God unto salvation. So would you display your glorious grace this morning? Would you watch over your word and perform it? Would you do what only you can do? In Jesus' name, amen. So listen to the words of the not-so-great theologian of our time, Mr. Luke Bryan. 
in his song, which was the number one last year this time. Luke Bryan sings, but I am not. I believe most people are good and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. I believe them streets of gold are worth the work but I still want to go even if they were paved in dirt. I believe that youth is spent well on the young because wisdom in your teens would be a lot less fun. I believe if you just go by the nightly news, your faith in all mankind would be the first thing you lose. I believe most people are good. I read these lyrics to you because I believe that this is largely what many in our culture, and even the church culture in Gaston County, in the South, believe. I would argue that some in this room submit to this thinking wholeheartedly. I would even argue that many, if not most of us in this room, submit to this way of thinking in some subtle way that we may not even be aware of. Perhaps this thinking is largely what is hindering us from sharing the gospel with our neighbors and our coworkers. Man, they're all right. They're pretty good. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and the entirety of the Bible fly in the face of this, I believe most people are good thinking. The Bible is not good advice for already good people. The Bible is good news for really bad people. Namely, hopelessly dead people. And so the first thing that I want us to see, or the main thing that I want us to see this morning is that the powerful grace of God in salvation raises hopelessly dead sinners to newness of life in Christ. So four things as we unpack these 10 verses. And the first thing that we want to see together is our dead and powerless condition, which Paul outlines for us in verses 1 through 3. He says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we see here our dead and powerless condition. I want to highlight three things just in these first three verses. First, that we were dead. Paul is writing to believers, and he is saying you apart from Jesus, before you knew him, were dead. And my guess is that Luke Bryan's number one single would not have taken off as well if it were biblically accurate. I believe most people are, I believe all people are dead. It's worth noting here that dead, in fact, means dead. Obviously not in a physical sense. But Paul is here referring to spiritual deadness in that we are alienated from the giver and author of life and we are unable to change our spiritual state. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it well. Life for the non-Christian is a living death. A friend of mine 
was telling me about a seminary class he either took or, or knew about at his seminary where the preaching professor had his students go to a graveyard and preach the gospel to tombstones. And it sounds silly, but that's the picture here. The only way a dead person would get out of that grave in response to the gospel is by the power of God. And in the same way, not one person is walking out of here alive this morning who came in dead unless God powerfully works through the preaching of his word. Paul says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That word in there represents the realm or the sphere in which sinners exist. We weren't dead because we committed acts of sin. We were dead because of our sinful nature and rejection of God. In other words, left to ourselves, in our own nature, we feel totally at home living in rebellion against God. We're comfortable there. It's where we want to be by our very nature, dead to the things of God. The things of God are boring, irrelevant. They make us mad. He goes further. We're not only dead, we're enslaved, following, Paul adds, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So these verses speak to our enslavement to sin and our enslavement to one who is incredibly powerful to lure us further into what our hearts already want. Paul writes, following the course of this world. This means that... Life for the non-Christian is lived under the control and the outlook and the mentality of this world. This world here, this word doesn't mean the physical earth. It means the outlook, the mentality and view of life that is in total rebellion to the things of God. That's what Paul means by the world. So, Here's what he's saying. We were following the course. We were following the path, the outlook on life that is in total rebellion and rejection to the creator of life. This illustration breaks down. But if God were a massive, unmoving rock at the top of a river, and the world is the river running downstream in the opposite direction, every one outside of Christ is a mere corpse floating face down totally sold out to the trajectory of where this world is headed. That is our state outside of Jesus Christ. But it gets worse. He not only says following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there is a spiritual power at work we a lot of times are totally unaware of. Namely, Satan and his minions leading the world away from God and into destruction. Paul even addresses this reality in Ephesians 6, verse 12, where he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, brothers and sisters, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The only difference is between a non-Christian and a Christian 
The Christian knows how to fight. The Christian has Christ. But outside of Christ, we're just following along. We fall into two extremes when it comes to these spiritual realities, when it comes to Satan. We either give him too little attention or too much. But the reality is he is real, he is smarter than you, he is more powerful than you, and he hates you. And the reality for us is that we are sinful to the core. The world system is enticing to our sinful hearts, and Satan uses the world extremely well to lure sinners away from their creator. Paul continues in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So here's what's insightful about these verses. Paul is describing what's taking place behind the scenes when we feel like disobedience to God is freedom. Paul is saying that outside of Christ, we lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. We did whatever was right in our own eyes. We followed our hearts. We're true to ourselves. We're true to our feelings. Yes, But what you were really doing was following a system used by the devil who hates your soul. Friend, do you think that you're free this morning? Those who don't know Jesus, do you think that you're free? Do you think that there's freedom in calling the shots in your life? Do you believe that you are the master of your fate, the captain of your soul? If that's you this morning, and that was once me, that was once everyone in this room, would you look behind the curtain that Paul is pulling back for us this morning and see that you are being duped? It is not freedom. There's just an enemy back there pulling strings, trying to get you to buy the lie that you are God, and the big guy upstairs, he either isn't real Or he's out of commission and he doesn't care about you and your sin. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. We were dead. We were enslaved. But we were condemned. Paul continues in verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is an all-inclusive statement. Everyone who has ever lived is described in this statement Every human being that has ever lived was and is by nature a children of wrath, which means that all of us are destined to experience the eternal wrath of God. We're destined and we deserve to. So what does experiencing the eternal wrath of God mean? I think Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 1.6 are sobering. He says, those who do not know God, a.k.a. all of us outside of Christ, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That phrase, eternal destruction, just jumps off the page. Paul doesn't say temporary destruction. He doesn't even say destruction. He says eternal destruction. Eternally being destroyed is where we're headed without Jesus. It's what every person in this room deserves. That's not an overstatement. We deserve to be destroyed forever. 
Left to ourselves, the only three things in our spiritual resumes would be dead, enslaved, and condemned. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, is intended like pretty much the whole Old Testament to lead us to a point to fall on our faces before God and say, God, if you don't do something, I am doomed. That's the point. The good news is good news because the bad news is real news. That's really our state. Which is why Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 is so glorious. And they start with the sweetest phrase in the entire Bible, but God. Look at verses 4 through 7 as we see God's phenomenal intervention. Verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Let's stop right there and see that God intervenes on our behalf with rich mercy and great love. Paul begins verse 4 with, but God, here's the intervention. God intervenes. Yahweh intervenes. The great I am, Charles Spurgeon said, I love this quote, he says, our God is no local deity, no petty ruler of a tribe. In infinite majesty, he rules the mightiest realms as absolute arbiter of destiny, sole monarch of all lands, king of kings, lord of lords, unmoved, he occupies an undisputed throne whose decrees, acts, commands are holiness itself. What other throne is like this? Never was it stained with injustice or defiled with sin. That is who we're talking about here. He intervenes on our behalf. This God who is holy, just, and sovereign, yet rich in mercy, lavishes on us great love. So why does Paul describe the love of God as great here, as mercy, as great here? Verse 5 gives us a clue. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Look at Romans chapter 5 with me for a moment. If Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 wasn't enough, Romans 5, 6 through 10 See the love of God. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Look at how Paul describes us in Romans 5. We were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. Let's add... Verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2, we're dead, enslaved, and condemned. That's who we were. And God intervenes in a powerful way. Brothers and sisters, it should not shock us that God intervenes in the lives of sinners. It should shock us that he intervenes to pour out mercy instead of wrath. And he intervenes in a very specific way. Way, namely in Christ Jesus. 
God intervenes on our behalf in Christ Jesus. Paul continues in verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As Chad alluded to earlier, notice the Christ-centered nature of our salvation. Four times in verses 5 through 6, Paul uses this phrase, with Christ or in Christ. Two more times in verses 7 through 10. In other words, our life is solely in and through Jesus Christ. We are dead without him. And we are alienated from the promises of God without him. We have no hope apart from Jesus. But notice the progression here in verses 5 and 6. First, God made us alive together with Christ. We who were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked have now been made alive together with Christ. In other words, God is not merely saving individuals and sending us on our way. He is redeeming a people for himself. He is making dead individuals without a place, without a purpose, alienated from his promise into a redeemed people who are alive now. And this is all because of Jesus Look with me back in Ephesians 1, just maybe one page over, where Paul is, is beginning to build this argument. He prays for the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, verse 19 and 20, that the Ephesians would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, Jesus really died. His dead body was laid in the tomb after he was crushed on the cross for our sins. But because of his perfect righteous life, his dead body didn't stay that way. Three days later, he got up and he walked out of the tomb totally alive. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning all things. And the unbelievably good news here is that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead intervenes and makes alive dead sinners like you and me. That's unbelievable. Jesus was dead. God raised him up. And by faith in Jesus, dead people can be made alive. He raised us up with him. He made us alive. He raised us up with him. No longer dead. No longer enslaved. No longer condemned. But now he also goes further. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, God has brought us near. In Ephesians 2.13, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't save us to then just send us out on our own way. He saves us into his family. He gives us a seat at his table. Which, which leads to two inevitable questions. Why would God do this? And how on earth did I get in on this? Let me answer the first question. Why would God do this? Verse 7 tells us. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
God intervenes on our behalf for this purpose, to demonstrate his glorious grace. God saves wretches like us to show the world, look at my grace. God could have left us dead in our sins. He could have crushed us under his wrath, but his grace is immeasurable. In other words, you can't get to the bottom of it. If God, and he doesn't have this, has a bag of grace and he opens it up, you can't look in and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. There's there's no bottom. You can't mind the depths of God's grace. It's immeasurable. And his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus leads us to repentance. And as God sovereignly makes dead people alive, he is showing the world the glory of his grace. So why would God save sinners like you and me? Answer, to demonstrate his glorious grace. Second question, how on earth did I get in on this? Just picture yourself seated at the dining room table of God. How am I here? Does he not know what I did? It's the same answer. His glorious grace. That's how we got here. So verse 8, we see God's powerful grace and salvation. Paul writes these famous words, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You and I had nothing to do with it. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Here's what I want us to see here. God does not meet us halfway in salvation. This verse is not saying God brings some grace, we bring some faith, and voila, out pops salvation. And and this subtle lie is true too. The measure of our faith, the more faith you have, the more grace you get. That is not true. Paul's point here in verse 7, 8, and 9 is that God's grace is immeasurably deep. It's beyond our comprehension. And as for us, we bring nothing to the table when it comes to our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're Office fans, the television series, The Office. The boss, Michael Scott, gets invited to the CFO's party and it's, you know, obviously in a big mansion, it's fancy, it's a catered event. And he shows up with old potato salad in a Tupperware container. That's what we bring to the table. And you know what? You know where it goes? In the trash. It's not going out with the fine china and the catered meal that God has poured out on us. Do you think that when Jesus said to a dead man, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus walked out and said, you see what I did there? My guess, and this is not in the Bible, so Casey's words, my guess is that Lazarus would have been right back in the grave if he said that. The only reason anyone becomes a Christian is because God graciously made a dead person alive by granting them faith and salvation in and through Jesus Christ alone. You and I contributed nothing to saving ourselves. Nothing. Can we just be okay with that? And rest in that. 
You might say, well, what about works? James says faith without works is dead. Aren't good works a necessary part of salvation? To which I would say yes, but not to earn it. Good works are a necessary result of salvation, but not a necessary qualification for it. Which leads Paul to write, saved by grace, not a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not our own. We have been bought with a price, that price being the precious blood of the Son of God. And we are God's workmanship. We are now new creations in Christ Jesus. We are totally undeserving recipients of the immeasurable riches of his grace. And this grace, according to verse 10, changes us. It gives us purpose. It compels obedience. Some may argue that a gospel that says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone would, would lead people to live loose, immoral, disobedient lives, to which I say, no, that couldn't be further from the truth. This gospel compels people to live lives of grace-fueled obedience. And if you think that the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is too loose... You don't understand the immeasurable riches of his grace. How could we walk away from the grace that we've received in Christ and live disobedient lives? So, why would God save me? Answer, to display his glorious grace. How on earth did I get here? Because of God's glorious grace. So, what do I do now? That's the inevitable question as we come to the end of this passage. So what? How should I respond to the powerful grace of God? And I just want to briefly appeal to the one who doesn't know Jesus and the one that does. But first, the one who is here this morning and you don't know Jesus. And I am glad that you are here. But the Bible would describe your spiritual condition as is dead. I would have just as much luck going up New Hope Road and preaching at the cemetery as I would to you. That's not a knock on your personhood. It's just everyone's spiritual state who doesn't know Jesus. It was true of me. And I heard the gospel and God made me alive. There's something different about you and the person in the cemetery and up New Hope Road. God graciously brought you here. God is graciously allowing you while there is still time to hear the gospel of his grace. Jesus took your sin on the cross. He was crushed for it. He bore the wrath of God in your place. He died. Really died. But because he was perfect, he rose again. He is who he said he was. And he says to you this morning, look to me and live. Your sins can be washed away. Look to Jesus and find true freedom. The second appeal I want to make is to the believer in this room. 
And the question I want to put before us together as God's people is, are you intentional with the life God has prepared for you in Christ? Are you intentional with the life that God has prepared for you in Christ? The question every believer ought to ask, what do I do now that God has lavished His grace on me? What do I do now that God has saved me? And the answer is, walk in the good works which He has prepared for you. The answer is work. Labor. Give your entire life to declaring and demonstrating that God is gracious. He is kind. He's slow to anger and He's abounding in steadfast love toward those who come to Him through the blood of Christ. Are you intentional with neighbors who need to see God's grace demonstrated through your life and declared from your lips? God has taken a dark neighborhood and He has placed you, a recipient of grace, there to be a declarer and demonstrator of the grace you've received. How about your coworkers? How about members in your growth group? Hebrews 10 tells us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, life is too short and God is too gracious for us to waste time not laboring in that which God has prepared for us. Life is far too short and God is too gracious for us to waste time withholding the grace God has lavished on us. Withholding grace from one another in the family of God and from withholding grace to people who desperately need the grace of Jesus. It is their only hope. And Christians above all people ought to know this and freely lavish it. So how can we who've received infinitely more than we deserve be grace hoarders If we really comprehend the immeasurable, incomprehensible grace of God, we will give ourselves to declaring and demonstrating the glorious grace of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious and kind to let us hear your word this morning. And we ask that you would display your glorious grace among us. We ask you to do something that we don't deserve and we ask you to do something that only you can do. But you say in your word that you you delight in the praise of your glorious grace. It's your will to display the glory of your grace. So, God, we ask, would it please you this morning to display to us? Would you cause the one who's walked in this room that has no clue who you are? Their heart is beating out of their chest. Would you show them the glory of the cross? For the one who's known you and walked with you for years, but their affections are 
are deadened, would you awaken them? Would you revive them according to your word? Would you restore to them the joy of their salvation? God, would you do what only you can do? Would you be exalted? Would your grace be celebrated now as we sing? May we enjoy you and praise your glorious grace together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.